Hello, welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines. With the annual American Society for Virology meeting coming up in two weeks, we are talking with graduate students and postdoctoral researchers who will be attending the meeting. Thank you for talking with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So my name is Laura Murray Nerger. And I just started my postdoc at BWH, uh, so Brigham Women's Hospital, uh, part of Harvard Medical School here in Boston. Um, and before that, I was uh, doing a PhD, PhD also in virology at Princeton um, in Ileana Cristea's lab. And I'm currently in Ben Gewertz's lab. Great. Um, and when you think back, um, how did you first become interested in science and virology? Uh, so science goes all the way back to my freshman year of high school uh, when I was taking biology and I found myself wanting to study for my biology test that was two weeks away instead of my history test that was the next day. Um, and so that was a pretty good indicator at the beginning that I was interested in science, broadly speaking. Uh, but then I went to college and I had amazing professors at the University of Richmond. And really my senior year, I took a pair of courses. So I took immunology in the fall and then I took virology in the spring. And uh, so it's sort of ironic that it was my last sem uh, semester of college uh, when I really first got exposed to virology and I just fell in love with it. I um, was so excited about uh, kind of this whole new world of trying to uh, understand host pathogen interactions and the complexity of viruses and how something that might be so simple can really uh, rewire a host system. And so then I went to graduate school and I was still you know, dabbling in different uh, areas of biology, but I did continue to really feel that pull toward virology. And so that's when I joined Ileana Cristea's lab uh, to work on human cytomegalovirus or HCMV, herpes virus. And I worked on uh, the lytic replication of that virus. Uh, even though it has a lytic and a latent phase, I was working on the lytic phase and uh, really using proteomics and uh, different virology, microbiology techniques in order to understand uh, the role that protein lysine acetylation plays in this dynamic between host and virus. Uh, and so I continued to be really passionate about viruses, uh, specifically herpes viruses, because they have this incredibly complex replication cycle. And so that really led me into my postdoc, uh, where I'm looking at another herpes virus, uh, Epstein-Barr virus. Uh, which not only has a lytic latent cycle, but its latent cycle has multiple stages to it. And so I'm transitioning to looking at that uh, lytic latent switch uh, in this uh, additional herpes virus. Right, great. Um, and since you've actually completed your PhD relatively recently, can you talk a little bit about sort of how you chose your lab and then sort of what would you say are sort of the um, features to a good lab? Um, so you obviously were successful, you got your postdoc. So sort of, you know, kind of like, how did you choose the lab? And then sort of what makes a good lab? Yeah, I mean, so I would start off by saying that uh, it, 
what makes a lab good really is going to depend on the match between the lab and the person. And so uh, I can only talk about what would have made it good for me. Uh, but I knew that what I was looking for was I wanted to be excited about the science, but I also really wanted to, I felt like I connected with the PI and with the lab environment and lab culture. And I would say uh, to a certain extent, if I really had to wait it, I would say I, I would lean toward almost weighting the lab culture and the PI a little bit higher than the science because there are so many really exciting science questions out there. Um, but if you dread going to work every day, you're not going to be productive. Um, and so I was really looking for somebody who was invested in their students, uh, cared about their success, was going to be uh, actively meeting with people, talking about their research, also fostering an environment where people were comfortable talking about ideas, uh, not feeling like they were going to be shut down, um, and a really collaborative environment. I was really fortunate in my PhD lab, and I'm also very fortunate in my postdoc lab, that both have been extremely collaborative, where people are always happy to step up and help each other, share ideas, share advice, and that openness, um, rather than hoarding all of your knowledge, uh, I think really is important for not only training young scientists, uh, but also for all of us developing and continuing to learn and moving the science forward. Right, right. And do you think, so since you've recently transitioned to your postdoc, did you look for something a little bit different in a postdoc versus sort of a graduate student lab? So graduate student, definitely looking for that. I would say there, there are a lot of similarities, um, especially with regard to that mentor-mentee relationship that you want somebody you're going to be feel comfortable with, you're going to be able to discuss ideas with, uh, especially since as a postdoc, this is really going to be launching your independent career that um, making sure that you feel like this person is going to be able to uh, support you in that, both with resources, connections, but also personally, uh, that you'll be able to discuss what you want in your future career. I definitely was looking in my postdoc lab, making sure I was looking for a lab where um, I would be able to learn something new so it wouldn't be a complete rehash of my PhD. And I know it can sound like, oh, you're working on herpes viruses, they're the same thing. But um, I've really been struck by how radically different actually this new herpes virus is. And I'm also learning a lot of new techniques. And I would say that's maybe the biggest thing I was looking for uh, was what can I learn in my postdoc? that will expand on what I learned in my PhD. So my PhD, I was really looking at proteomics and mass spectrometry as my main workhorse, large scale tools. And so in my postdoc, I'm really going to be looking much more on the side of RNA-seq, chip-seq, transcriptomic work, and which will complement what I've done in my PhD. We're looking at proteins, looking at um, you know, nuclear acids instead, but I, that was something I was really important to me was building on my technique toolbox. Hmm, interesting. And then I noticed basically both of the techniques that you're talking about, both the proteomics and then RNA-seq 
have a big data sort of computational um, aspect to that. Can, so can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think traditionally virology was not a big data sort of um, computational um, field as it were, but obviously it is now and it's becoming even more important. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so when I started grad school, I had zero experience with any large data set, anything like that. I hadn't even ever want to run a Western plot. So it was basic, basic. Um, and I do want to say that so many of those kind of traditional fundamental drill down on the mechanism techniques are so critical still. Um, because if you have this big giant data set, that's all well and good. But I'm a big proponent of functional follow-up. Okay, cool, you found something that's interesting. Let's pursue it. And so many of the really molecular virology techniques are what you then need. What I find exciting about big data sets is that they allow you to really take a very broad approach to a problem. Um, instead of having this biased, well, I think it's probably one of these five things that you can really take this unbiased approach of, tell me, I'm interested. So if I change this, what happens to my system? And what I think is really powerful there is that it's a hypothesis generator and it then opens up the doors where you might see something you didn't expect. You're like, wait, why? Why is that a hit? Why is that something that's so prominent in my analysis? And when it comes to big data, I think it was definitely not as scary as I thought it was going to be. Um, it was a lot more work in Excel than I may have initially thought, and which is honestly quite nice because that's a platform that a lot more people will find accessible. And then of course you can expand that out and make it more complex. But uh, speaking for my work with proteomics, I haven't done the RNA-seq yet, so I can't speak about that. But uh, speaking with my work with proteomics, uh, we had terrific computational tools in the lab. And then we also had a senior scientist who was very skilled and very patient, an amazing teacher, and someone who really invested in kind of training the young people in the lab uh, just you know, to the point where you can begin to approach it. And then it's amazing how what you, when you really learn is when you're analyzing your own data and you come into a, a question, like, well, how do I deal with that? And then it's, as long as you know just enough, then you know what questions to ask to try to address that problem. Right, right. Um, and I guess, can you tell us actually, so based on that basis, can you tell us a little bit about sort of some of the main findings that you had from your graduate work? So this is more talking about or thinking about sort of like the acute or the lytic replication of a herpes virus, and then what you're kind of planning on studying more with latency. Can you go into that a little bit more? Definitely, yeah. So for my graduate work, again, I was looking at human cytomegalovirus or HCMV, lytic replication. And uh, there had been some knowledge in the literature previously for individual proteins that protein lysine acetylation was an important regulator. And we know that it's extremely important in uninfected cells from diverse processes. But really there wasn't an understanding in a global sense 
of how protein lysine acetylation is changing and can function as a regulator uh, throughout the time course of a viral infection. So that was what I set out to begin to understand uh, in collaboration with another graduate student in the lab. And what we ultimately uh, found was we had this terrific data set of um, numerous acetylations, uh, so approximately 6,000 acetylation uh, sites on host and viral proteins. And so right off the bat, it was extremely exciting because there were no known acetylations on HCMV uh, proteins prior to our study. And so that immediately opened up uh, many doors. And we followed up on one of those and found that um, that particular acetylation, this is by doing uh, site-directed mutagenesis to mimic either an acetylated version of the lysine or an unacetylated version of the lysine. And so we actually made viral strains that had that mutation in it and then looked at what was the effect on the amount of virus produced. And what we found was that this acetylation actually had an inhibitory effect um, on viral replication, which was very exciting to see that this could have an impact. And then on the host side, uh, we have multiple stories in the lab that are stemming from that. Uh, but the one that we, that I really focused on was with regard to a uh, acetylation of a nuclear periphery protein known as lamin V1. And that protein uh, serves to help stabilize the nuclear periphery, maintain nuclear shape in uninfected cells. And because herpes or HCMV capsids are so big, they get assembled in the nucleus, but they're huge. They can't fit through nuclear pore. And so we know that the nuclear lamina has to be disrupted to allow for that capsid to egress. And so I asked if this acetylation might impact that process. And by combining molecular virology with microscopy, um, with targeted mass spectrometry, what I ultimately found was that this acetylation uh, at lamin B1 is actually stabilizing the nuclear periphery, making it more difficult for the lamina to be disrupted, for nuclear curvature to happen, and ultimately impeding the ability of viral capsids to egress in the nucleus. And so this is an antiviral mechanism um, that happens during infection. Great, great. And then now that you're sort of turning to more latency, um, can you describe, you're saying that there might be like multiple stages of EBV latency. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is well established in the literature that um, upon primary infection with EBV, uh, there, you know, there are a few EBV proteins that are expressed and then there's this gradual almost shut off um, going through latency stages, like three to all the way to latency one, where um, is, there's very few, there's like a viral protein and a few uh, RNAs that are expressed. And then uh, one of the big questions still is really, what are the various mechanisms that underlie reactivation? Yeah. Uh, because this genome is there, once you're infected, it's there for life, but it might just hang out for a really long time with no impact. But, and you know, as your cells replicate and divide, the genome gets duplicated, goes along with the cells, but then there'll be a switch and something will trigger reactivation. And then you get full lytic reactivation and production of EBV viral particles. And so there are certain triggers that are known, but then the molecular mechanisms are still not fully understood because the EBV genome 
know, it gets chromatinized, it gets packed, but sort of tightly packaged up during uh, latency to prevent expression. Uh, but then really understanding what's happening to that genome to trigger reactivation or when reactivation occurs and what host proteins may be involved in mediating that or even holding it latent. And that if one of those proteins now is degraded, that induces reactivation because it allows for genome um, you know, conformational changes. That, so that's really what I'm beginning to address, beginning to target in my postdoc. Good luck with that. So I can't remember, you were saying you're not going to be talking about this work because you've just started. Is that correct? Okay. That's right. I'm not presenting at ASV this year. Fingers crossed for next year. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I'm just at the very beginning here. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to that future work. Um, and then before we finish, can you just kind of talk a little bit how this last year, year and a half has been like for you? It's been a hard time for everyone during the COVID pandemic. How has it affected you sort of as an individual, but also as a virologist? Yeah, it's, um, it's been an interesting time. I would say I'll start maybe from the virologist side where uh, it was a funny thing because prior to COVID, you know, I said, oh, I'm, I'm a virologist. I study viruses. People look at you like, what? You do what? And it took quite a bit of discussion and explanation to say like, oh, you know, for what you work on. Whereas now my mom says, oh yeah, my daughter's a virologist. People know immediately what that is and then have so many questions. And it's an interesting feeling to go from having to really explain what you do to almost being inundated with people thinking that you're some huge expert in everything about viruses. And you're like, I know, a little bit about a lot of viruses and a lot about a couple viruses. And so it's been interesting to have that experience. It's also been, um, I feel like almost a, a privilege to be a virologist at this time because to really be able to understand more of what's coming out in the literature and uh, about SARS-CoV-2 and being able to read these papers and really feel comfortable approaching them and then being able to talk to say my parents about it uh, and feel like I actually understand a lot more uh, has been a very humbling experience. And then with regard to my personal experience, well, uh, I had that entertaining or interesting phenomenon of applying for postdoc positions during COVID. And so all of my interviews, everything were virtual. So I had never set foot here until I showed up on my first day, which is definitely different than what it would have been. Um, and I would say the first time I had any kind of interview on Zoom was very weird because normally you go, you show up, there's all this buildup to it. You have all these interactions with people. You would maybe go back to a hotel room. Here, you sit down at your computer, you do this interview, you close your computer, and you're there. You're just done sitting in your apartment. And it's so you lose some of that sort of build up and cool down that would happen. So it was definitely unusual in that regard. That being said, I was extremely impressed by how well uh, PIs and groups 
ran virtual interviews. And we did one um, in my PhD lab while I was there. And it worked surprisingly well um, for being able to still interact, still get a feel for the person. And I, I know when I interviewed here with my current postdoc lab that uh, they actually took me on a tour of the lab, you know, like walking around so I could see things. And we did that in our lab when we interviewed someone. And I think that it really does still give you a sense of the place, um, which is cool. I would say I was, I feel like it went very well. I was very fortunate. And I did interview kind of in, so that was like July through September of 2020. And so people had had a little bit of time to sort of adjust. And I know for some people who were looking for postdocs starting in March of 2020, that was extremely hard. And so I actually feel very lucky and very fortunate that I was offset just a tad in time. Um, yeah, well, great. Um, thanks so much for talking with us. And like I said, we look forward to some of your research. Um, hopefully we'll hear about it next year. Um, uh, so thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you, Larissa. And thank you for putting this together. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Backright, and thanks for listening.